0: I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brennis Female Podcast. Every week, I speak with women changemakers and founders who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrenniesfemalecom slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Today, we're airing a special episode of The Brandis Female podcast as September 26 marks World Contraception Day. In Canada, it's half of pregnancies that are still reported as unplanned and one woman out of six who does not use contraception. We know how much of a lasting impact unplanned pregnancies have on women's lives. And here at The Brand Female, we support women being able to make a choice. In this episode, I speak with three experts about the state of affairs when it comes to contraception, sexual education and unplanned pregnancies in Canada. You will hear from Dr. Diane Franca, OBGYN and General Director at the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, as well as Dr. Ashley Waddington, OBGYN at Queen's University, and Frédéric Chabot, Director of Health Promotion at Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, which is Planned Parenthood north of the border. This episode is brought to you by the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. Here is our conversation. Welcome to the Brand is Female podcast. It's a pleasure having you. And today we're having a special edition. So I'm very happy to have three of you joining me for this conversation. So for the benefit of our listeners, I'd love to go around the room and just have each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, So maybe uh, Ashley, Dr. Waddington, we can start with you.
1: Sure. Thank you for the invitation to participate today. Um, My name is Ashley Waddington. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist and an associate professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And I'm the co-director of a fellowship called the Contraception Advice Research and Education or CARE Fellowship um, that teaches graduates in obstetrics and gynecology to become experts in contraception and family planning. Wonderful. Thank you.
2: Zian. So my name is Diane Fracker. I am an OB-GYN as well from Montreal. I work in St. Justin Hospital for close to 30 years. Uh, My main interest is pediatric adolescent gynecology. So I've been working with a teenager, forever teenager as well, since I've been taking care of adult women also. So I have a good expertise in contraception, and I think that we never talk enough about it. And I have a new role also, I'm the CEO of SOGC, and my goal is that we get the knowledge as close to women as possible to help them making the best choices.
3: Wonderful, thank you. And Frédéric? It's such a pleasure to be at this table. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Frédéric Chabot. I'm the director of the health promotion team at Action Canada. Action Canada for Sexual Health and Right is a national human rights organization uh, that works to advance sexual and reproductive rights in Canada and globally. And I've been with the team for about eight years, uh, working with the public and also with policymakers. And before that, I was in community health at AIDS service organizations and harm reduction services. Wonderful. Thank you
0: so much. And I'm so glad to have the expertise of, of each of you for this conversation today. And I think I want to dive right in and ask you, as today is, uh, or we're airing this episode on uh, on National Contraception Day. Um, so we know that half of pregnancies that are reported today um, are reported as unplanned. And that seems like a, like a, a high number to me. And that begs the question for me, do you think that youth are still getting or are getting enough education around contraception or are there more conversations that we should be having? Uh, Frédéric, would you like to go first?
3: This is a topic that is a passion of mine, so I'll be happy to dig in. I'd like to say that in 2020, Action Canada published a report called The State of Sex Ed in Canada, where we examined the kind of education young people are receiving across the country. We couldn't find the answers in terms of what was happening in classrooms, or at least we would get partial answers. And so we took a methodical approach to to figure that out. And so a first answer to your question would be that across the board, sex ed is not up to par in any regions in Canada and does not meet either international benchmarks or even our own national guidelines on sexual health education. Of course, there are passionate educators in schools and hospitals, in the communities and in a lot of sexual health centers, uh, but that's not enough in terms of equitable access to that kind of, of information. And then the second part of my answer would be that beyond an education on contraception, so the practical knowledge of what are the options available, there are two key elements of sex ed that play a role in ensuring that people have more control over their reproductive health and decisions, and that is not really happening systematically in classrooms in Canada. So the first one would be that the evidence is clear that the kind of sex ed that is the most effective is the kind that clearly exposes the dynamics of gender and power or what we call a gender responsive sex ed. So this is scientifically proven, there's a lot of studies on that, that even if people have all the information in the world on what kind of contraception is uh, accessible to them, if we don't account for the impact of gender roles or of the sexual scripts that are tied to gender, which can dictate someone's ability to negotiate condom use or their contraceptive use, then we're not going far. It means that people may know that they should use something, but they may not be have the ability to negotiate it. And then tied to that, we also know, and that's you know, international benchmarks, national guidelines, sex ed must be tied to a network of sexual health services that are youth-friendly, so clinics, hospitals, where, where young people can access maybe low-cost or free contraceptives and also the care that they need to, to put the knowledge into action so at this point, unfortunately, what we have to report on is that they don't have the information and they don't have the practical uh, services and resources necessary to put that knowledge in practice. Mm. Ashley, I see you shaking your
0: head. Is, is, do you agree with uh, what Frederick has brought up?
3: Absolutely.
1: I, I completely agree with Frederick. I'm not as knowledgeable about the status of education. Um, so, for example, like at the elementary or high school level, Um, But I certainly see it reflected in my patient population and the interactions that I have with patients. And I see there's a wide variation in what people know um, or don't know or misunderstand about um, their sexual and reproductive health. Um, And so a lot of my job is actually educating people in the clinic um, about how their bodies work, how contraceptives work. And I would say something that always strikes me And I I ask this question every year. So here at Queen's University, I teach the medical students in the medical school, um, their lectures on um, the menstrual cycle and on on contraception. And I always ask them at the beginning of their lectures um, this question. I ask them, if 100 heterosexual couples have sex regularly over the course of a year, how many of those couples will conceive a pregnancy? And The correct answer is 90 out of 100 couples. So getting pregnant is a very common outcome for people who are sexually active. It's the most common outcome, actually, the the most likely thing that will happen. Mm -hmm. And um, almost universally, every year I'm floored that people who are in medical school, who who have gone through high school, who have gone through usually an undergraduate degree or two or sometimes a master's or even a PhD, um, usually in an area that includes biological sciences, And none of them get the answer correct. They all underestimate the risk of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so if I had any influence over a curriculum that would help people to understand their reproductive health, I would start at the basics, which is that if you're having sex and you're not doing something to avoid pregnancy, the most likely thing that will happen to you is you will get pregnant. From there, let's talk about the different methods. If, if you don't want to be pregnant, there are lots of options available to you, and we can talk about the pros and cons of those various options and what works best for you. Um, but I find just that fundamental lack of understanding about how common pregnancy is sort of undermines the efforts to try to educate people about contraception, because if they underestimate their risk of getting pregnancy, they don't always um, recognize the need for contraception or, or how different levels of effectiveness in contraceptions will affect them. So I, I always find that interesting. I, I ask the question every year when I do the lecture for the medical students and, and I'm floored and they're floored <laughs> when they find out the correct answer. Um, and, and I don't think that people who are sort of... Um, not in the mm-hmm. medical sciences probably have a better grasp on that number <laughs> than mm-hmm. these people
2: do. So. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's unbelievable. And, and Zian, is that something you're seeing in your practice as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, there's different way to see this 50% because, you know, since the beginning of my practice many years ago, it's always the same number, no matter what we do. So we have to nail it down. And I, I think in in that we know that you know if we look at uh, women having abortion, it's uh, you know we used to think it was only teenager, but now we realize that their perimenopausal women have are having a lot of abortion as well. So mm. there's some knowledge that were not transfer about your your reproductive health that even your pregnancy may happen until until you have your. I always tell my patient your certificate of menopause, yes. and 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 you know we have to talk with women about it, and and so there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of, uh, well, what we call sometimes fake science or uh, and 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 information that are going on social media that are not always right, but we we need to make sure that women and girls and of all ages know where to get the right information. And But not only information, also access is a big issue. And one of the, the best calls we've done in, in Quebec in the last couple of years before COVID was to have the nurses being able to prescribe the birth control pill in, in high school and our, you know, rate of teenage pregnancy really decrease. But then... You know, I don't think we can talk about contraception without talking about access to abortion. You know, there's the medical abortion is still not so available in in Canada. It's a disaster in the Maritimes where abortion, alone altogether, is not available. Mm-hmm. So you know, women don't trust that we're working with them. You know, if if you don't give access to something has Uh, important has contraception because you know it's part of your normal life to have sex you just need to decide when you're going to be ready to have a baby or not and then if we were able to look at it closer maybe we could be helping them more effectively
0: And something I wonder—we we bring up women, and you know, women having access to birth control and and women getting sex education. But obviously, it, it takes two typically to to become pregnant. And is there a disparity in what you're seeing between? Um, you know, sex education and education on contraception specifically that young men and young women are getting. Um, And do we still feel, do you still feel that uh, there is stigma for men specifically uh, around having actual conversations about contraception? So um, maybe we'll start with Frédéric again.
3: I think it goes back to how sex ed is key in terms of building knowledge and capacity around challenging gender norms. I think, uh, of course, it's going to be very interesting to hear from uh, my colleagues in more clinical uh, spheres if this is what they see, too. But there's often this this belief that contraception is only the responsibility of those who can get pregnant. And so I think one of the important pieces of the conversation is to uh, challenge those norms and to say this is an important conversation that everyone should be having. This would actually probably facilitate access to contraception to everyone if it's an open conversation that we're able to have. And so uh, these norms don't serve us. They actually worsen our health and and key parts of, of our global health. And, and I think it, uh, it really shows, too, that sex education is a civic education as well. It shapes mm-hmm. our culture. It shapes the way that we relate to one another, which is why it's such a point of focus sometimes for uh, anti-human rights groups who understand the potency of sex ed as a way to shape the way we interact with one another. I, it cannot. It does not only give us the practical information we need to make those important choices about our health, but also the critical thinking skills to understand why we may need to challenge the way we have gone about certain things, like making contraception the responsibility of people who can get pregnant only. This is a conversation we should all be part of.
0: This season of the Brand Is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and Dirt About confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD services for women in business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women and Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. Mm-hmm.
2: Zian, men well,
0: versus yeah. women.
2: Well, I would have that in this conversation, there should be three parts really important. And and I think that it, it is 50-50 responsibility to all of them. The first one is to talk about trust and respect in a way that when I say no, I mean no. And this, I think this is probably something that is, I mean, I don't, See why it is new, but it's new in the conversation because we talk about it. We use not to talk about the, the, this fact, and and I think that in just in that matter, there's so much education that needs to be done with young guy because they, they don't know about it and they're not talking too much about that in school as well. And and we have to go there. And then the other two component, obviously, are STI and contraception. And 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 I think that younger men have a, I would say a, a better feeling of responsibility in in that matter maybe than before, but still, you know, you're both responsible to that. And and I I think well, unfortunately, COVID has been a mess with, with uh, having a couple sitting in front of you when someone see a healthcare provider for contraception. But they should all come to always come together, yes. always, always, always.
0: Mm, that's such a, a good point. Ashley, is that your opinion as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, as Diana's is saying, it's, it's 50-50, or it should involve both partners um, when there's sexual activity taking place where pregnancy or sexually transmitted infection is a potential outcome. Um, and I'm very happy to see the discourse um, sort of in social media and, and even in mainstream media About emphasizing the importance of consent. And I see a number of sort of educational campaigns around that, and I'm very supportive of that. Um, But what I haven't seen emphasized so much in those campaigns, it tends to speak to um, consent to sexual activity full stop. Like, um, you know, you can't have sex with somebody if they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol and that kind of thing. Absolutely a critically important message. Um, But you also need to have consent to the types of activity and the level of risk. That people are willing to take when they engage in sexual activity and that includes the risk of sexually transmitted infections it includes the risk of unintended or unwanted pregnancy um, and that's a little bit more of a nuanced discussion so it's not sort of like green light have sex go <laughs> red light no sex don't go um you know it's a more nuanced discussion and and various types of sexual activity can carry different levels of risk And people need to know what they're consenting to in order to truly provide consent. And are they consenting to activity with somebody whose um, STI status they don't know? Are they consenting to sexual activity in the context where protection is being used, but then um, can't negotiate the use of that protection? So it's a more nuanced discussion, and, and I'm so happy that there is a conversation about consent going on. Um, but I think that we need to dig a bit deeper into what that consent means, um, because consenting just to sex is is different than consenting to different types of sex and different levels of risk.
0: Mm. That's such a, an interesting point. And, um, Frédéric, I actually want to come back on something you brought up in your first answer, um, the answer to the first question, when you talked about how behind Canada is compared to other nations and when it comes to sex, educa- sex education, so I'm wondering what are uh, kind of, you know, best practices, global lessons that we, may, we might be able to draw from what is typically very effective when we are trying to provide, uh, you know, better education, more information and, and have both genders be equally part of, of that conversation and, and, and gain the same knowledge ultimately.
3: I think I, I would invite everyone to uh, take a look at what the UNESCO technical guidance are on sexual education, because they break down the kind of topics that are important to in, uh, see being taught in classrooms and in communities as well. So not just in classrooms. Uh, I also would invite everyone to visit uh, the the National Guidelines for Sexual Health Education that are hosted by CCAN, so the Sex Education and Information Council of Canada, uh, which also breaks down the kind of sex ed that is backed by evidence. And so at this point, the research is so very clear in terms of the life-changing impacts of sex ed, in terms of the topics that make the the biggest difference, in terms of what needs to be there to have effective education in that realm. Uh, this is not new. This is something that also has a lot of public support. So this is not often how it's presented in the media, which often puts it as as this contentious issue, when when the fact Mm -hmm. is the level of support in Canada for effective sex ed and evidence-based sex ed is very, very high. So as high as 94% in Ontario, 92% in Saskatchewan, 94% in the Maritimes. And so I think that would surprise a lot of people in terms of the fact that we're all on the same page, that this is something important for a lot of us. And, and then to answer uh, your question maybe more uh, in details in terms of what we find globally. So when we compare Canada to uh, to the types of sex ed that have worked very well, we can look at what's going on in the Netherlands mm-hmm. Uh As an example of really positive approach, a really positive approach to sex ed where it starts early, it's embedded as a normal part of education from the start of school till the end. And the outcomes that we see in the Netherlands are uh, people who initiate uh, sexual relationships later later. In life, and for reasons that are different than in the United States and Canada, uh, where we also see that peer pressure becomes like a a big factor in when a a sexual activity is initiated. So, in the Netherlands, teenage uh, teenagers report that it's you know they initiate sexual activity because of love, because of intimacy, because of desire. They want to be uh, having sex with their partners. They consider their parents and teachers to be resources to be able to have uh, the kind of sexuality that is safe and affirming. And they have, um, you know, lower rates of STDBIs, of teenage pregnancies and other such outcomes that we can look at to measure the effectiveness of sexuality education. Mm. The the current state of sex ed in Canada is very concerning, and it puts us in violation of many of our human rights obligations. And the federal government often deflects those responsibilities, saying that education is is provincial jurisdiction. But at this point, they have received several communications and warnings from the United Nations in terms of uh, the importance of standardizing sexuality education across the country and ensuring that people have access and equitable access to scientifically proven uh, sex ed. Mm. Ashley
0: and Zian, I don't know if you want to add something to what you brought up.
2: Yeah, well, I'll I'll just uh, take the segue talking about the Netherlands because I remember many years ago there was a study when uh, you know our I would say teenage pregnancy rate were not so good in Canada <laughs> about twenty years ago, and there was a study that showed that you know if you could find condoms in the kitchen drawers in your home, your the likelihood of being <laughs> pregnant as a teen was very very low because it was accepted that you have this conversation with your parents and, mm. and I, you know, what I recommend to my, you know, the, the, the mother of the teenager that sometimes I see at the same time as well is talk, you know, talk to your teens, talk, 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 talk. Sex ed belongs to all of us, not only healthcare provider. It belongs to teacher. It belongs to parents. It, it belongs to the big sister, big brother, who should talk to their young sister young brother about how to be respectful and how to prevent because you know when it happens it's not the end of the world but you know it's you you have to be prepared and and find the information and you know sometimes we forget i would say the 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 teenager that teenager, sometimes they are exploring all kind of uh, i would say sexual behavior and they don't know to talk to because they are afraid they're going to be judged mm-hmm. and and you have to feel very comfortable not to you know to tell someone your secret and and sometimes when they tell you so then you realize that they're taking a lot of risk and you just need to you know have the conversation right away when they open the door just to you know deflate that and help them to make the better choices next time mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Ashley, anything? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's so important. And and we still see so much of this. I see it in my patient population that there is shame around sexual activity, particularly for young people. Um, You know, they still get the message that they're immoral if they participate Mm -hmm. in sexual activity or have sexual thoughts or feelings, um, that it's, um, you know, something to do only in the context of marriage. Um, That message is still quite strong. and And, yeah, when you think that something is shameful, then it's not easy to discuss that, uh, whether that's with your parents or other trusted adults or or even your peers. Um, and so you go and try and find that information yourself. And sometimes the quality of information that you come across is um, not not what we would hope that it would be. And so I think a big part of, you know, increasing um, people's ability to take in the information from sex education, is to move away from that sort of shame-based approach to saying like, well, you shouldn't be sexually active, but if you have to be, here's a way that you could do it that's less dangerous or what have you. Um, and to talk about it is this is a natural part of life. It's a natural part of how we share intimacy and feelings with other people. And um, that there there is no shame in it, but there are... Um, Potential risks associated with it, and there are ways to mitigate those risks. And if we could come at it from that approach, um, that would be so much better. But there are—I know there's a lot of young people who who aren't um, comfortable talking with their parents about this because they they feel that they will be judged or or shamed, or even you know, in extreme cases, you know, kicked out of the house or what have you. Um, And so you know, we just have to really move away from that that conceptualization of sexual activity as something that's shameful. And reframe it as something that's normal and natural and a part of almost every person's life um and that that that's okay but that there are ways to sort of reduce the risks that may be associated with those activities
0: Mm, that's a a very important point and it actually it disconnects to my next question which uh, was going to be for, for Ashley and and Zian. How do you prepare for a conversation about contraception with your patients? And, and you know, does that change if the parents are present? If the partner is present? And maybe in there, there's some advice too on how uh, parents or you know siblings, older siblings, can be speaking to uh, young men and women about the about the same topic.
2: Well, I personally talk about sex all the time when i you know see a teenager and you know as soon as the period starts it's time to start talking about it and we never do that in front of their parents or you know we'll just ask you know broad question just to (laughs) feel the climate of the relationship between them and their daughter but you know we always ask them to step aside and sometimes they're not happy to do so but you know it's uh when they step aside i don't only talk about conception i i talk a lot about abuse you know and 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 once again you know and 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 what's okay for you might not be okay for your your best friend but you know we, we you need you need to find your own boundaries and you need to know who to talk with something goes wrong and and sometimes you Know, I had some parents coming back later on and said, You know, I was so pleased when my daughter told me that these were the questions you asked because obviously they asked, What did she say? You know? <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and and you know, it, it's it's in a way. Uh, and in you know for me asking about sex is asking about drugs and alcohol and whatever you know it's part of life so it's uh, we have no problem and that's that's you know what i always tell them you know i talk about sex and see naked women all day long that's my job that's what i do so it's it's a no-brainer for us to talk about that Mm. ashley
1: i agree i think it's it's our job as clinicians to normalize just discussing all of these issues at every opportunity when they present themselves. Um, because I think there's also a persistent belief sometimes um, by parents, but also by the society at large, that if we talk about sex, it will encourage people to have sex. Mm. And so even though they may have useful information that they could share with their um, children or their students or you know, the young people in their lives who could use that information, their concern is, well, if I bring it up, that's going to give them permission or somehow encourage them to engage in sexual activity. And I think actually what we know is that that's that's absolutely not true. Uh, and in fact, that when um, young people have more information about sex, they actually tend to delay the first onset uh, of sexual activity. Um, and so talking about it just needs to be regular li- regularized <laughs> um, in our lives. And, and it doesn't have to only be at the doctor's office. You know, It doesn't only have to be in the context of your gym class or whatever it is in, in your school. Um, but it's a normal topic of conversation that can come up at other times as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we just need to to be mindful that talking about it doesn't encourage it, but it does encourage being open about it and being able to seek the information that people need.
0: I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TV logo. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brandis Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support Claire Miglionico.